0: DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Steffen.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. We have to talk about what's going on in Myanmar. The country in Southeast Asia is now in its third year after the military forcefully pushed out a democratically elected government and things have been going from bad to worse.
2: We have more cases of people who were tortured to death during the interrogation. It is very clear an activist was arrested in the evening, and later the dead body was sent back on the next day early in the morning.
1: Since the military coup in Myanmar over two years ago that ousted the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi, the ruling military regime has arrested tens of thousands of people Aung San Suu Kyi and other leaders are in prison on trumped-up charges. The military has also targeted peaceful protesters, artists and journalists. Just last month, the military junta pardoned around 2,000 political prisoners to mark a Buddhist holiday. However, this is only a tiny fraction of people, as the majority of dissidents remain behind bars and arrests continue. Myanmar has a history of coups. Its citizens have suffered decades of repressive military rule, widespread poverty and civil wars with ethnic minority groups. The transition away from full military rule starting in 2011 had many people hopeful that democratic reform was possible. But the military kept control over key positions in the government and began a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the predominantly Muslim Rohingya minority. But former political prisoners say conditions now are worse than ever. Justin Higginbottom went to talk to some of them who sought refuge in Thailand just across the border.
0: Police in Yangon came for Min Tet before dawn on February first, twenty twenty one. They handcuffed him and took him to an interrogation center. He couldn't know for sure what had just happened in his country or why police detained him. <laughs> We're in a sparse, safe house in Thailand, close to the Myanmar border. Min Thuay wearing a t-shirt with Che Guevara's image, tells me his interrogators had a dossier of his activism. It was extensive. He's worked in pro-democracy movements in Myanmar since he was 17, becoming a leader in the All-Burma Federation of Student Unions. He's 40 now, and he's been to prison twice before. This time, they put a black bag over his head kept him awake with no water for days. Eventually, he found out what had happened. The military
3: has carried out a coup d'etat in Myanmar. They've seized control of the country and detained key government officials, including the country's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi.
0: On the day of his arrest, the Myanmar military took power from the democratically elected government, which trampled their proxy party in elections. Despite those early roundups, people took to the streets to protest. And the junta started a new era of brutal political repression. They arrested anyone suspected of challenging their rule. Banking and internet were restricted. Soldiers opened fire on peaceful protesters and razed entire villages thought to harbor resistance forces. Observers say the junta has killed more than 3,600 civilians so far. It's a kind of repression familiar to generations of Burmese dissidents.
2: This is the cell where I was living in prison. I used to live with four people together in this
0: prison. I'm at a small museum run by the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. It's in a suburb of Sot, Thailand, near the Myanmar border. That group documents human rights abuses by the military. A tour guide, he'll go by the name Cha Win, spent six years in a jail like this. His crime, making political posters while a chemistry student in 1992. The cell is only about two by two meters. So maximum one hour, a day, we are
2: out of the cell. Most of the day, we are in prison. We are in the cell.
0: There was just a bucket for a toilet. Disease was rampant. Their food was often a watery vegetable broth and whatever insects made it into the cooking process. Inmates relied off care packages from families for food and medicine to keep them alive. Reading and writing were prohibited. Prisoners cherished any scrap of paper they happened to come across with text, maybe part of an advertisement. There's a model of the prison where he was jailed here, the notorious insane prison in Yangon. That's spelled I-N-S-E-I-N. This is the front door, and this is the back door.
2: In prison, they have said When you are alive, you have to get out of the prison through the main gate, the front gate.
0: If you are dead, your dead body will go through the back gate. Colonial British rulers built it in the 19th century. Over the years, Myanmar's military filled it with dissidents. Chawin luckily made it out of its front gate. As you move clockwise around this modest museum, one room if you don't count the prison cell, panels show you the country's history of uprisings and inevitable crackdowns. It started in 1962, after Myanmar's first coup. Students at Rangoon University protested, authorities bombed their school. It was dynamited by the military regimes in 1962, 7 July. Yeah,
2: hundreds of students were killed in this compound.
0: There's the 1974 student demonstrations, the well-known 1988 uprising, 96, 98, pictures of bloody streets, crumpled bodies, the 2007 saffron revolution led by Buddhist monks.
2: But at the time, we have lack of the resource to get the information about that, the monks and also the people who were arrested in that uh, revolutions. But I think
0: at least more than hundreds of people and the monks were arrested. His organization works to bridge that gap of knowledge on human rights abuses, using sources still in the country. They count close to 19,000 political prisoners still behind bars now. And he says that conditions have never been worse. So in our time and current situation is totally
2: different. It's worse than our time. Because is there are a lot of bribery and corruption in prison, and a lot of oppression in prison
0: compared to our time. Keep in mind that Chawin was beaten in prison when he was caught writing. A troubled economy and influx of detainees is a bad recipe for corruption. He says you might be lucky to get a small cell like his to share with only three other people now. Without bribes, you'll be assigned more back-breaking labor. Care packages from family, what prisoners in his day would rely on to survive, are harder to get. Ong Myo Min is the Human Rights Minister for the Shadow Civilian National Unity Government. He spoke with me from Europe.
2: We have more cases of people who were tortured to death during the interrogation. It is very clear an activist was arrested in the evening, and later the dead body was sent back on the next day early in the morning. So how cruel are the cases of the torture or mistreatment during the interrogations?
0: He says there's more cases of rape, abuse of members of the LGBT community, international organizations aren't allowed to visit jails. The military doesn't even recognize the category of political prisoners. Before the coup, the museum in Mesat had only one photo of a prisoner formally executed by the military. Now there's five. The last wall here is dedicated to the current uprising, photos of burned villages and charred bodies. We protest against peacefully to the military regimes in every uprising, but they cracked down brutally in the past and so far. Chawin has given this tour many times. It was hard reliving the worst period in his life, but it has also helped him heal. In the beginning of my presentation in this museum, I feel something bad,
2: but I present it again and again. It makes me feel better, and we can also describe our experience to know the other
0: people is also a part of
2: my
1: healing
0: process. Min had the student leader picked up on the first day of the coup, has his own way of healing.
4: While
0: in prison, he promised his fellow inmates to help their families if he got out. After a year, he did get out. He completed a sentence for allegedly volunteering without a license during COVID. He says that charge was politically motivated and that authorities often use any excuse they can find to jail and isolate activists. Now he raises money to help the families of those jails. He says he helps around 100 people per month. He can't give them a lot, but he hopes it's enough to keep them afloat until their loved ones are released or Myanmar is free. For DW, I'm Justin Higginbottom in Mesa, Thailand.
1: According to the Peace Research Institute Oslo, more than 6,000 civilians were killed in the first 20 months following Myanmar's military coup in 2021. This is a significantly higher number of deaths than what's previously been reported. In a report released this week, the Institute says politically motivated murders were the main form of violence in both urban and rural areas. Myanmar's military and police were responsible for about half of all killings. anti ku resistance groups killed about 2,000 civilians, and unspecified perpetrators killed at least 1,000, it says in the report. Earlier, I spoke to Min Zou, a global fellow at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo, and executive director of the Myanmar Institute of Peace and Security, who is the lead author of the report. So the military regime is killing its opponents in unprecedented numbers. That's shocking enough. Why are anti-coup resistance groups also killing civilians? Are they not fighting for the good cause?
3: The military coup has unleashed polarization we have not seen in this country for decades. So this polarization considers anyone affiliating with the other side, regardless of their Uh, nature either unarmed or uh, the civilians, uh, they they are not considered protected under the rule of armed conflict. So the military, when they raided the villages in Zegayin, this is an area where the armed resistance was the strongest, when they find people who uh, are potential supporters of the resistance groups, uh, they were executed. So this is the one type of the politically motivated murder. The other type is committed by the armed groups. They selectively target individuals, civilians, or like civil servants, it could be teachers, you know, it could be, uh, sometimes, uh, some of the doctors, uh, bankers. So if they see or if they consider them as a supporter of the militaries, they think it is okay, it is legitimate to kill them even though they are civilians. That's why we are seeing the extremely large portion of the civilian death comes from politically motivated murder. Uh, usually it armed conflict, civilian casualties, if you look at the civilian casualties, the fatality rate is usually much less than the, the wounded. But in Myanmar case, we have more death than wounded. Because of that kind of politically motivated murder, it's not a collateral damage that is intentionally targeting civilians because of their political affiliations.
1: The military regime plans to hold elections later this year. However, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy, the party that won the last general election, isn't allowed to participate. And neither are other opposition parties. So why even hold an election if the regime shows outright it's going to be
3: a farce? The regime, when they came to power, their pledge was to hold elections. Without holding elections, the regime will not be politically sustainable. So a lot of leaders in the military can see that holding the election is the way that they uh, actually fulfill their pledge. But on the other hand, the new election law restricts some of the political parties to re register, like an NLD, also choose not to register because of the new election laws. And the NLD also considered that they were legitimately elected in 2020 elections. So if the region holds the elections, the 2020 election result will be automatically nullified.
1: You are sounding the alarm that a steep escalation in violence is going to happen during the elections and leading up to it. And you said there have been threats already. How can this be avoided? And ultimately, how can Myanmar find peace?
3: Uh, number one is that all parties involved in this conflict must explicitly prevent the killing of civilians, regardless of their political affiliations. They have to denounce that uh, these killing of civilians, killing of non combatants um, armed people are uh, not acceptable.
1: That was Min speaking to me from the United States. The military regime has suspended travel authorizations for aid workers who are trying to reach more than a million people in Rakhine State, on Myanmar's west coast, that was wrecked by a cyclone last month. The UN has slammed that decision. Rakhine State is where the military launched a brutal crackdown in 2017. Rohingya refugees fled to neighboring Bangladesh, where they have been cooped up in what amounts to the world's biggest refugee camp. But what was meant as a safe space turned out to be not so safe after all. Things have gotten so desperate, pushing some to try their luck at making a dangerous trip across the sea to get to Thailand or Malaysia. DW's Naomi Conrad, together with Arafatul Islam and Birgitta Schulke, went to investigate.
4: Imagine you're standing in the world's largest refugee camp in southern Bangladesh. It's a dusty, bustling place. Rows of tiny huts made of tarpaulin and bamboo lattice huddle along narrow dirt tracks. Small stalls, rickety plastic tables, or even just fabric spread on the floor, line the wider streets. Banners with the logos of countless international aid agencies are stretched between lampposts, urging people to wash their hands, vaccinate their children, or bin their rubbish. Wherever you turn, you're surrounded by a buzz of activity. Men, ankle-length fabric wound round their waist, amble down the roads or wait in line for rations. Children, the older dragging the younger ones along, run and giggle. But for all the bustle, there's a marked absence of women and teenage girls. The few you spot hasten along the road, many enclosed in black and blue burkas, some with an additional umbrella held low over their veiled faces. For in the camps, a
5: woman's place is in her hut. We always have to stay inside our huts. That's why it's so difficult for the women, and they feel sad or depressed. Like everyone here,
4: Rumida Bigum is an ethnic Rohingya, a conservative, predominantly Muslim community. Women, many here believe, should stay at home and maintain strict purdah. They are not, that is, to show themselves to any men who are not their relatives or husbands step outside, and you are expected to cover.
5: When we go to collect our rations, there are many people. We wear a burqa, but we still feel awkward because men and women mix in the collection points. We feel ashamed, but we still need to collect them.
4: She fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh almost six years ago when the military burnt and bombed her village, killed and raped. She's a stocky, reserved woman dressed all in green, her headscarf adorned with a sparkly brooch shaped like a leaf. Her home is small and gloomy, and she shares it with her mother, two brothers and one of her brother's wives. There's a sparse bedroom the family shares. A mirror in a pink plastic frame dangles from the bamboo lattice. Take three steps and you're inside their small kitchen guarded by a black chicken huddled in a plastic container that eyes visitors warily as she guards her chicks. There's nowhere to retreat to.
5: We used to have a space near our house in Myanmar that was secluded. The women used to go out and sit there together. We used to take chairs from our houses to the garden. We had fruit trees there. In the summer, there was a breeze. In the winter, we would sit in the sun. When it rained, we got wet. All my friends used to gather there to chat and sit there together. When we were sad, we all used to gossip together to laugh and feel better. Here, I feel like I'm in a prison. And yet, life in the camp has propelled
4: Romido into a position that she, an illiterate, divorced woman, would never have held back home. She is a chairwoman, elected to represent some 16,000 refugees.
5: I go to the meetings with the NGOs and camp officials. They ask us about the problems we were facing in the camps. And I explain things. I used to feel good about it.
4: Used to. Remember that. We'll get back to it in a bit. Often women come to Ramida's hut and sit in a circle on the floor of her tiny parlor, under posters explaining urban gardening and the importance of vaccinations, provided by the NGOs that provide the food, health care and basic education the refugees depend on to survive.
1: <laughs>
4: a couple of mostly elderly women have gathered in her hut. She summoned them here for my, the international journalist's, benefit. But Ramida's lengthy lecture on child marriage and trafficking, both scarily common in the camps, to which the women listen attentively, nodding and murmuring their assent, soon takes an unplanned turn. One woman, who has donned a surgical face mask, given the male translator's presence, tells us her son has been kidnapped.
1: I have no news about him. I don't know who took him. They called us and said, we would get him back if we paid 2,000 euros, or they would kill him.
4: As the elderly woman speaks, Rumida looks increasingly uncomfortable. In a different hut, equally dark and sparsely furnished, a hushed conversation with a young woman about life in the camps also quickly turns to security, or rather insecurity.
6: There are groups who lure 10- or 12-year-old boys to Malaysia. After that, they take them to Myanmar and call their families who have to pay thousands to get them back.
4: It takes a lot of courage and determination to operate a small school in this atmosphere. This woman has both.
6: I came to Bangladesh in 2017 and started working for an NGO on gender-based violence. That's when I realised the challenges that many women face because of their lack of education. They can't even read the prescriptions doctors give them, and then don't know how to take their medication correctly. The refugee, who was a teacher back in Myanmar,
4: decided to set up a small school for children and women in her hut. For reasons that will soon become clear, we can't say much about who she is, or even use her voice. She's elegant in a bright, matching scarf, face mask and gown, and our hands are adorned with intricate, swirling lines of red henna.
6: Women couldn't get a proper education or work in Myanmar, not because they were told not to work, but because there were just no opportunities. For in Myanmar, which is run by the Buddhist
4: majority, the Rohingya have long been denied proper rights, including citizenship. They are in essence stateless and need special permits to travel and marry and are barred from university. So as bad as the camps may be, they do offer for some, an opportunity.
5: It makes me happy when I study, and when I come here and meet other children.
4: This 10-year-old girl, who like the others in the class has donned bright lipstick and makeup for us, says she wants to become a doctor. Sadly, that probably won't happen. Rohingya refugees are not allowed to get a secondary education or even an official job in Bangladesh any position in the camp is voluntary with a fixed stipend. The basic education that is permitted has to follow the Myanmar curriculum. If, one aid worker told me, there is an inspection and any Bangla is found in a student's notebook, well, there would be trouble. So to be clear, state policy is not to integrate these people. That's
2: Definitely not.
4: That's Mizanur Rahman, the top Bangladeshi official who presides over the camps. His wood-panelled office is vast and cool as an air-conditioning blasts cold air into the room. What are the plans for the future for the Rohingya here?
3: Number one, repatriation. Number
5: two, repatriation. Number three, repatriation. No other solution.
4: Repatriation. That's the return to Myanmar. To the country, that is, whose military killed the Rohingya in what the UN labels a genocide. Bangladeshi officials stress that repatriation is voluntary. But life in the camps, which is not really one camp but several, scattered between lush fields and villages, is getting harder. The refugees are no longer allowed to travel between the camps that were recently enclosed with barbed wire, and the authorities are clamping down on the little stalls and shops. To get outside, refugees say they have to sneak out under the fence, and hope they don't get stopped by security forces, and then They are the militants you heard about earlier.
6: I was asked why I was doing this and that for the girls. Why I'm taking them out of their huts and inspiring them to work. I told them I was doing it for the betterment of our community. They told me not to do that anymore. They threatened me. She's agitated, rubbing her hands.
4: Two years ago, she says, she was taken by militants for several hours. Then, a year ago, they kidnapped her brother, took him to the hills and tortured him. Eventually, he was released.
6: I still get threatening phone calls, and they came to our hutch twice and knocked. But we pretended not to hear them and didn't open it. After a while, they left because other people noticed them. She would,
4: she says, meet us outside the camps so she can talk freely without the constant danger of being overheard. But after we leave, she tells us she is too scared of the men who threatened to kill her brother. The car is meandering through a crowded bazaar, following two men on a motorbike. One of them is tall and thin, wrapped in a thick parka, the hood drawn over his eyes, a black face mask covering his greying beard. A contact arranged a brief meeting with a man who says he's a member of one of the groups and gangs operating in the camps, the one that evokes so much fear among refugees that they won't use its name in the camps the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, ASA. Led by a small cadre of Rohingya refugees from Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, the group has been battling the Burmese army for self-determination. In the camps, they are imposing their social norms.
3: We tell women to maintain the veil. If they move around without a burqa, they will be warned first not to do so. If they still don't listen to them, they will be picked up and beaten. They beat their husbands. They try not to kill them.
4: Very few, he says, dare to defy them.
3: They don't do anything anymore out of fear and
4: become polite. Polite, or rather, terrified. And remember, ASA is just one of several militant and criminal groups operating in the camps.
5: Every couple of days, someone is abducted. No one wants to put themselves in front of a gun.
4: And that is why Ramida, the elected chairwoman, has decided she won't contest in the next election. As for the teacher, she hasn't given in. Yet. She's scared, and she doesn't know who to turn to for help. There
6: is a UNHCR protection team. They take too long to provide protection and what would happen if they send the police? If a policeman stands here, they will come and kill me and the policeman.
5: There's a very strong protection team that's managed by the UN in the camps and their work is to follow up on these cases and to provide support to women and try and identify what support is needed. If there's a direct threat like that, we would refer it to the police and to the security forces. That's Gwyn Lewis, the United
4: Nations' Resident Coordinator in Bangladesh, who, from a villa in one of Dhaka's more luxurious Um, neighbourhoods, coordinates all the UN organisations operating
5: in the country. Do women get moved to safe houses at all? There is some support in terms of safe houses, and we have done that. And again, it does happen with very specific cases, but we do have those facilities. Not as expanded as we would like. It's like all of our programs, given the funding situation, it's, it's um, we would always like to do more. One woman,
4: who had been threatened by militants, told us she would soon be moved to a UN safe house. Three months later, when we called to see if she had indeed left the camps, she was still waiting. So, let's go back to where we started. Try to imagine, again, that you're living in the camps. That you've managed to create a breathing space for yourself that, even just for a few hours, gives you something to do, a purpose, a much-needed distraction. But then, the threats start. What would you do? It takes courage to go against your community, but it takes even more to go against militants with guns. Especially if you can't leave. If there's nowhere else you, a stateless refugee, can go. Bangladesh doesn't want to keep you. Myanmar doesn't want to take you back. And the rest of the world is, let's face it, unwilling to take in any great
6: number of Muslim refugees. I want to have a home, the chance to get an education, and a country to call my own. And I want an ID card. I want freedom.
4: It's not a lot to ask for, really. But imagine you're in that camp, and you know... There's no safe way out. You might just be desperate enough to get on a rickety, unseaworthy boat. For DW, this is Nemi Conrad in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh.
1: That's our show. For more, go to DW.com slash progress. The studio team was Wiebke Maya and Thomas Schmidt. I'm Sarah Steffen saying thanks for listening and bye for now.